Hello, this is Pastor Patrick Hines. Welcome to today's live program. And as you can see from the title there, I'm uh, going to be talking about old uh, Calvinism or uh, recovering old Calvinism and also discussing um, what it means to really be reformed. Um, there was a movement that uh, took place, you know, not too long ago. It's still kind of a kind of a thing, the, the new Calvinism and the young, restless and reformed. And uh, the first time I ever heard that, <clears throat> the first time I ever heard that phrase, young, restless, and reformed, I was actually arguing with a guy that uh, was at the church in Ohio there. I have no idea uh, why he went to that church, because he hated reformed theology with a purple passion, and actually self-published a book on the subject um, called Chosen or Not, A Layman's Guide to Something. And it's it's the worst book I've ever read. It's absolutely horrifically bad. Um, absolute, uh, just dripping with hatred for God's sovereignty and um, everything Calvinistic. Uh, th this guy actually struck me as someone who thought that the phrase irresistible grace was actually a cuss word uh, or a cuss phrase. So anyway, um, he used that phrase, young, restless, and reformed. So this is, man, he used that phrase with me. This would have been in like 2009 or 10, like a long time ago. And uh, so I'd never heard that, Young, Russellson Reformed. And from the very first time I ever heard that phrase, Young, Russellson Reformed, I immediately did not like it. Because I was restless until I became Reformed. When I became Reformed in my theology, which to me is to say, when I became biblical and Christian in my understanding of the Christian faith, and of theology, when I became biblical in that regard, that's when I stopped being restless. In my pre-Reformation days, I was very restless and had very little assurance and very little understanding of God's plan for the world and um, very little understanding of what it meant to really understand what justification was and what sanctification is and how one is an act and the other a process. I didn't understand how to have assurance. I didn't understand that I could not lose my salvation because God is the one who initiates, God is the one who preserves, God is the one who brings us all the way home. So I did go through a period of restlessness in my Christian life, but I was restless until I was reformed. To me, the, the, the term restless and reformed um, does not go, do not go together. Um, because if you're really reformed and you really do love the true gospel and you understand God's sovereignty and you, you know what it is to rest upon the finished work of Christ, um, why would you be restless? Okay, in fact, um, think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Answer, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace wherein we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel okay so that's what faith is faith is resting on the finished work of christ now i was also introduced to the likes of um francis chan and mark driscoll there were young pups at the church there in ohio that were really into those two someone gave me a book called crazy love by Francis Chan, which I started to read, and it was so shallow in its theology that I put it down and went back to reading Charles Hodge again. 
uh, because I thought this guy's not reformed. <laughs> I think Chan is actually did he did he convert to Roman Catholicism or or what? I mean, he Francis Chan has completely gone off the deep end. Driscoll basically disappeared. He got in trouble for I think for plagiarism, but I never looked at him as reformed either. To me, he was just the guy that cussed when he preached and who would preach about you know sex in very graphic terms. So really, Chan is with the New Apostolic Reformation movement now. But isn't isn't the NIR ecumenical with Rome too? Because I've seen Chan on there with Catholic people doing stuff or whatever. So, but basically, what I'm what I'm trying to say is this young, restless, and reformed thing. It never really was reformed, and that's why it was restless. That's why it was restless. And uh, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about today. Uh, that's what I, I want to talk about today. Um, what does it really mean to be reformed? What does it mean to be reformed in your theology? To me, when people ask me, um, what, what are the distinctives of the reformed faith? What I always say in response to them is, when I talk to you about the distinctives of the reformed faith, what I'm really telling you are the distinctives of Christianity. Okay, it's not, well, here's my take on things, and here's what I think about this or that. The distinctives of the Reformed faith are the distinctives of Christianity, of what the Bible teaches. So, there's a book, um, it's a, a good book, R. Scott Clark, uh, his book, Recovering the Reformed Confession. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've got it on Kindle, and I've read sections of it, and it's, it's pretty good stuff. And um, there's a couple things in here about historically what is meant by the word reformed. And I know that Clark has been a, a critic of the idea of the new Calvinism and everything else. And we're going to talk about why here. But there's, here's a great quotation I wanted to read uh, from R. Scott Clark on what is a Calvinist and what does it mean to be reformed. Listen to this quote. Just as being confessional enables us to, criti to criticize elements of our past, it also places us at odds with some aspects of contemporary Reformed theology, piety, and practice. One place where Reformed confessionalism will place us in conflict with some segments of contemporary Reformed Christianity is in the way the word Reformed is defined and used. Now listen to this. In a Christianity Today article, Christianity Today is one of the most widely published and distributed uh, Christian, well, supposedly Christian periodicals in the world. In a Christianity Today article, Colin Hansen chronicled the rise of young, restless, and reformed leaders in evangelicalism. The essay describes the popularity of and reaction generated by several evangelical leaders, none of whom is identified with a historic reformed denomination or confession. Okay, now folks, this is the thing I want to emphasize to you. Historically, the word reformed meant that you adhered to one of the reformed confessions of faith, like the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Second Helvetic Confession, or the Westminster Confession, which is what I subscribe to in the Shorter and Larger Catechisms. Okay, so listen, so a lot of these leaders who are part of the Young Russellson Reformed, they didn't subscribe to any of the Reformed Confessions. What is, how do we ref define Reformed theology? You want to know what Reformed theology is? you got to read one of our confessions. In fact, I want to make a book recommendation. This one right here. See this? The Reformed Standards of Unity. This has the, the uh, uh, historic statements of, of the confessions of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches. It's got the Second Helvetic Confession in it, the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Do you want to know what it means to use the label Reformed? you got to read this stuff. And you got to know this stuff. And I encourage everybody, 
Um, if you're if you're from more of a continental reform background, memorize the Heidelberg Catechism. If you're a Presbyterian like I am, memorize the Shorter Catechism. I've memorized it several times. Um, my kids will, will quiz me once in a while. I'm actually teaching it to them. Um, but there's a couple places uh, towards the end I get a little bumpy. But I know that, that Shorter Catechism pretty well. Um, <clears throat> but that's what it is to be Reformed, is to hold to one of these Reformed confessions and to hold to what it teaches about covenant theology and the whole gamut, including sacraments and everything else. Okay, so listen to, to this, the rest of this quote here. So, see, okay, before I, before I just pick back up where we were, Christianity Today is talking about the young Russellson Reformed, and there's quotations from leaders in the young Russellson Reformed movement who are not Reformed, who don't subscribe to any of these confessions. Okay, listen. <clears throat> the essay describes the popularity of and, re- and reaction generated by several evangelical leaders, none of whom is identified with a historic Reformed denomination or confession. For the purpose purposes of this argument, however... What interests me about the article and the subsequent discussion is the way the adjective reformed is used. It is clear from the article that what is meant by the adjective reformed is predestinarian. Okay, let me just break from the quotation here. That's one of the problems. If people think, well, if you believe in predestination, you can, you can describe yourself as reformed. That, historically, that's not accurate. Now, I'm not going to make a, a big quibble about uh, the word here, what, what my interest is here in this podcast today, in this program today, this webcast, whatever whatever, whatever kind of cast this is I'm doing, I'm not even sure what to call it, um, is to recognize what does and does not fit with Reformation theology, with Reformed theology, confessional Reformed theology. Because a lot of people that use the word Reformed, they don't subscribe to a Reformed confession of any kind, and they're not even in a Reformed denomination. Okay, says says uh, uh, R. Scott Clark here, that basically people use the word reformed if someone believes in predestination. And that's not enough. Okay, predestination is not enough to call yourself reformed. Okay, listen, he goes on. It never seems to occur to anyone in the discussion to correlate the adjective reformed to the historic reformed churches and confessions. Imagine, however, if we were to transport the current discussion to the early 17th century when the Reformed churches were defining themselves in the, in the forge of controversy with Rome, the Arminians, and the rationalists of their day. Imagine that these young, restless, and Reformed leaders traveled to the Synod of Dort and presented themselves to the Reformed churches of Europe and England as, quote, Reformed Christians, end quote. Now, just breaking from the quotation, you see where he's going with this? These young Russellson Reform guys, they would not have been accepted as Reformed by the Continental Church or by the Westminster Assembly. Okay, now listen to what, what he goes on to say. I think this is, really, this is really brilliant the way he did this. Would they be accepted as Reformed Christians? Of course, the first questions would be, what do you mean by Reformed? Do you confess the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism? At that point, the discussion would soon fall apart because though these visitors to the Synod would have much in common with the Synod on soteriology, that is, on salvation, they would have rather less in common with them on the doctrines of the Church and the sacraments and on the hermeneutics of covenant theology. One cannot doubt that our time travelers would return home disappointed to be rejected by the Synod of Dort, but were they to try again at the Westminster Assembly, they would find a similar chilly reception. 
if our young restless and reformed theologians could not poss- could not find hospitality at Dort or Westminster, we may fairly ask whether the adjective reformed is properly used of them. If, as this volume has argued, the reformed confessions are the measure of what it means to be reformed, then it cannot include those, however earnest, who deny doctrines that are of the essence of the reformed theology, piety, and practice. Perhaps even more interesting than our time travel experiment is the question how it came to be that evangelicalism has come to use the word reformed of virtually anyone who holds to the doctrine of predestination, regardless of whatever else one may confess. The first part of the answer is that it is false to assume that predestination is our distinguishing belief from what our whole theology, or from what which our whole theology is derived. That's a, that's a brilliant sentence. Listen to that again. The first part of the answer is that it's false to assume that predestination is our distinguishing belief from which our whole theology is derived. The second part of the answer, however, is less obvious. It is that we have come to speak of and define ourselves by this single doctrine. When broader evangelicalism uses the words reformed and predestinarian as synonyms, they are only imitating what they hear and read us saying about ourselves, end quote. It's very true. So when I say I'm reformed, I mean I subscribe to the to the creed. I subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I subscribe to the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms and the whole system of theology, not just to God's sovereignty and predestination of his elect people, but to the whole system of covenant theology, of sacramental theology, of ecclesiology, our doctrine of the visible and invisible church, and all that that entails. It includes those who profess faith in Christ and their households and their children, etc., so on and so forth. That's what, historically, that's what we mean by Reformed. Now, what is, quote-unquote, the new Calvinism? What What is that? It's kind of a modern phenomenon, um, and... As I said, as the Christianity Today article points out that uh, that Clark referred to there, it includes individuals who do not subscribe to any of the Reformed confessions and who do who are not part of any Reformed denomination. And so you have to wonder why do they why are they co opting the term then? Why, why do they want the term Reformed if the, historically they're they're really not holding it um, to be what it meant historically? Okay, so here's the New Calvinism. Rooted in the historical tradition of Calvinist theology, New Calvinists are united by their common doctrine. In a Christianity Today article, Colin Hansen describes the speakers of a Christian conference, quote, Each of the seven speakers holds to the five points of Calvinism, yet none of them spoke of Calvinism unless I asked about it. They did express worry about perceived evangelical accommodation to postmodernism and criticized churches for applying business models to ministry, They mostly joked about their many differences on such historically difficult issues as baptism, church government, eschatology, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you, that's one thing that that bothers me too. They make a joke out of everything that they differ on, on things like baptism, church government, eschatology, and the gifts of the Spirit. It's it's all lighthearted, no big deal. But as I'm going to point out here in the towards the end of the program here, hopefully getting here pretty soon, I've got a bunch of things I, I put into a Word document I wanted to get through in my program today. Um, especially when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that is something that has caused unspeakable damage to the Christian church 
uh, in my generation and for the past 100 years or so, 120 years in America in particular since the rise of Pentecostalism. And listen to this. They drew unity as Calvinist evangelicals from their concerns with secret churches, church growth marketing, and manipulative revival techniques. Okay, as implied by the new, with the word new, like new Calvinist designation, some differences have been observed between the new and old schools. John Piper, for example, has identified what he considers to be seven main differences. New Calvinism is complementarian, not, not egalitarian in this view of uh, biological sex differences. New Calvinism uses contemporary forms of music. New Calvinism is popular, popular among Baptists. And that's one thing I'll tell you, having read the Institutes of the Christian Religion and having read the Calvin stuff on baptism and his thoughts about Baptists, John Calvin would have recoiled in horror at the phrase Calvinistic Baptist. If you doubt that, please look at book four of the Institutes of the Christian Religion and just, you know, follow, follow the chapter titles to get to his stuff on Baptists and Anabaptists and his understanding. And uh, I think that you'll see that he would not have been okay with that, that use of his name. Uh, four, New Calvinism is popular also among Charismatics. Now I'm going to point out, John Calvin, John Calvin absolutely excoriated Charismatics in his own day. Because people think, well, Charismatic stuff, that's, that's brand new, that's new, that's a modern thing. No, it's not. The Charismatics and the Continuationists and the, every form of, of that kind of thing existed really from the t second century on with the rise of Montanism there in the early church. And I just read the uh, article in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology on Montanism. And of course, just like every other uh, uh, odd prophetic movement, they were predicting the, the, the end of the world. And of course, it, it, it didn't happen. Um, and that, that's the kind of thing that, that's, that happens a lot. But as Piper says here, the new Calvinism is popular among charismatics. So that tells you right there, it's not reformed. You can't be a reformed charismatic can't you absolutely can't do that it's just the two things do not go to, to go together okay hey there little b and i see other people over here i'm gonna try to get to your little your comments over here in a little bit but there's a lot of stuff i want to get through here so i want to try not to look over here so I'm, I'm not distracted um the books of jonathan edwards feature prominently among new calvinists uh, in addition to those of john calvin um but i think it's important to point out john calvin would not have been happy with the new Calvinism. He would have, I think he would have had some very harsh things to say about it. New Calvinism is engaged um, to using the internet, social media to communicate. Uh, new Calvinism includes multiculturalism. Okay, one more thing here. Uh, here's a criticism. People like R. Scott Clark and many others have criticized new Calvinists like Mark Driscoll um, should not be saying that they shouldn't be called Calvinists merely because they believe in the five points of Calvinism. But rather, he suggests that adherence to the three forms of unity, that's the Belgian Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, and other Reformed Confessions of Faith, is what qualifies one as a Calvinist. Now, historically speaking, if we want words to, to mean anything, our Scott Clark is right about that. He's right. Now, now let me just make sure that, that people don't go all pre-cardiac on me here. I do not agree with the two-kingdom theology. I don't, I don't buy that stuff. Um, but Clark is good on the gospel. Um, he's consistently got the gospel, right? And has never confused it that I've ever heard. And I think he's right about this. I think that he's uh, uh, right about this. Okay. Uh, wow. NBA Ohio. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay.
Anyway, so apparently whoever that guy is, he doesn't think that theology is important because it leads people away from God. And we need, we need to get our head out of the books. Uh, NBA Ohio. Um, here, let me show you something. You ever seen one of these? That's called a Bible. It's a book. In fact, it's a library of 66 books. So we definitely don't want to get our heads out of our books, uh, especially these books. Um, so what? How, how, how ridiculous is that? Okay. So the new Calvinism as it started kind of coming up and the young Russellson reformed and the Mark Driscolls and the Francis Chans and the CJ Mahaney's and the Pipers and everybody else. These guys do not subscribe to any of the historic reform confessions. Okay. Um, yeah, you can't know Jesus without studying him in his words. That's right, Lily. Preach it, baby. You got, you got it. And by the way, I'll be picking you guys up at the end of, uh, of track today. So, uh, but I'm not going to be speaking on here till five. I promise you that. All right, so let me uh, just share a few a few thoughts here about um, what I wanted to kind of focus on a little bit here today. Is um, if you're if you're reformed, if you're reformed in the old sense, not in the new Calvinist sense, which is not not Calvinistic, and it's it's really it's really not new either because the the charismatic stuff and and um, a Baptist, I mean, th- those have been around for you know for a while. But I don't think any of them really ever saw themselves as being "quote unquote" reformed. They they may have held to some of the things in the Reformed Confessions about salvation, but they they don't subscribe to what the Reformed Confessions, what all of them teach about covenant theology, about the continuity of the gospel across the testaments. I mean, they they don't subscribe to that stuff. So it's an odd thing to me that people like the the word Calvinism. It reminds me of. Um, uh, Norman Geisler, who identified himself as a dispensational Calvinist, which is like, what? What is a dispensational Calvinist? How does that make any sense? Because to be a Calvinist or to be reformed is to subscribe to one of the reformed confessions, which requires you to be a covenant theologian, not a dispensationalist. I want to go through some of John Calvin's uh, thoughts about charismatics. Okay, uh, John Calvin dealt with uh, charismatics, primarily from uh, Anabaptist circles. Um, many people don't realize that um, a lot of the Anabaptists and their, the, a lot of the Anabaptist groups um, were very odd uh, in their view of, of uh, Revelation, not, not the book of Revelation, but the concept of Revelation, of God speaking to his church. And many of them um, were kind of quasi-charismatics. Uh, and John Calvin had to deal with that quite a bit. In Acts 14, uh, verse 3, um, uh, John Calvin gives very specific teaching on this. In fact, let me read Acts 14, verse 3 to you first here. Acts 14, verse 3. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Okay, so the ability to, to work signs and wonders is limited to the apostolic age, and it's, it's given to individuals, and it was given to them, those signs, the ability to do signs and wonders and miracles by their hands was to authenticate them, and, to, and God bearing witness to the uh, new inscripturated revelation that was going to be put into scripture in the preaching of the new covenant gospel, the, the gospel um, in its post-advent form um, of preaching Christ and him crucified. God gave the ability to do miracles to the apostles and their associates during that time to authenticate the new revelation. John Calvin says this, the Lord was granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. In Calvin's commentary, Calvin says, 
The Lord gave witness to the gospel in miracles, for it shows the true sense of miracles. Okay, He says that's the, the true use. It was to bring validation and authentication to the message that he that was being brought by the apostolic messengers. He says, quote, Calvin says, quote, Unless they be drawn into abuse and corruption, God does never suffer them to be separated from his word. And that's one thing that Charismatics, Pentecostals, and folks like that do constantly. They separate the work of the Holy Spirit from Scripture, from the Word of God. And it's absolutely vital that people understand the use of, um, or the, the purpose of signs and wonders and miracles. This is one thing in my conversations with Charismatics. I, I had a Charismatic pastor for six years. Um, shortly after I came to know Christ, he was my, my pastor for six years. And people will say, show me a verse that says that the apostolic gifts have ceased. And I'm always like, show me a verse that says that the office of apostle has ceased. And they can't do that. But they'll say, no, 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 there, there are no apostles today. I'm like, well, is there a verse that says that that office has ceased? Well, no, there's not. Well, be consistent. Be consistent. But charismatics typically do not understand, <clears throat> have demonstrated in, in my own conversations with them, don't understand the purpose of signs and wonders and miracles. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 how could they understand this passage? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Listen. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? So Jesus at first spoke it and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, his apostles. And listen. So Jesus and the apostles, God also bearing witness to Jesus and the apostles, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Why did they have the ability, Jesus and the apostles, to do signs and wonders and miracles? That was God bearing witness to the word, to the message. That's the purpose. So, the reason we do not need individuals who have miracle-working powers, and by the way, there are no people with miracle-working powers today. The reason we don't need any today is because we have all that revelation now. We have the New Testament now. The canon is closed. So God doesn't need to bear witness to his word with signs and wonders and miracles. And the thing is, even the most hardcore charismatics today will usually will admit that what they call tongues is not languages. What they refer to as speaking in tongues is not real languages. So now you have tongues that aren't languages. You have prophecy, supposedly, that might be wrong. In fact, that's one thing. If you read the books about this topic, the, the, the candid charismatics, will, I mean, they're on record. They're in print. Saying, yeah, 85% of everything I've ever predicted hasn't happened. 80% of everything I've ever... 80% of, of the miracles I thought were real actually weren't. They were fake. And I, I'm like, no, actually 100% of them were fake. Um, <clears throat> now, can God do miracles? Yeah. But are there miracle workers today? And people will say, well, I know someone that did this or that or whatever. A miracle worker, if someone who has the apostolic gift of healing... They should be able to go to someone and heal them. And if they lay hands on them, and that person's not healed, and they say, well, I, th I thought they had faith to be healed, and 
It just wasn't the Lord's will this time. Time out. That's not the apostolic gift of healing then. They don't have the gift then. So even with people who are in the charismatic movement, you have tongues that aren't languages. They're not like people speaking in known languages today. You have prophecies that are fallible and might even be wrong. And so that doesn't measure up to biblical standards either because the prophets, if they spoke in the name of God, they had to be right every time. And how, what are we to make of this? You have miracles that don't work or are not verifiable. Okay, if, if your lower back pain went away once, praise the Lord for that. But is that a miracle? That's one thing in, in that group among charismatics. The word miracle and sign and wonder, th those, those words are kind of cheapened. Okay, if I pull into the uh, grocery store and there's a one parking space open near the front entrance, and I say, Lord, it's a miracle. It, is that really a miracle? No. Um, if my knee was, has been bothering me and then... It, it just kind of starts feeling better. Is that a miracle? Is that a sign or a wonder? No, it's not. Is it? An, could it be an answer to prayer and God is showing mercy to me and his, and his providential ordering of all things? Yeah, sure. But when we talk about cessationism, that is the historic position of the Christian church. We do not believe that God is still doing signs and wonders and miracles, giving those gifts and those abilities to do them every time to people to bear witness of his word because we have it all now. There's no need for those kinds of things now. Okay? Now, concerning speaking in tongues, John Calvin states very clearly that the gift of tongues has ceased in the first century. In his commentary on Acts 10, verse 44, Calvin said this, quote, the gift of tongues, which, is, which means languages, not gibberish, languages, and other such like things are ceased long ago in the church. But the spirit of understanding and of regeneration is a force and shall always be a force. And by the way, I just want to tell you, to me, there is no greater miracle than someone being born again. That's more impressive to me than someone being healed of, of uh, congenital blindness or deafness or, or being healed from being crippled. Someone being born again and having their heart changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's way more impressive than miracles. And the thing is, historically, there are three major epochs in which God did signs and wonders and miracles, and he gave those gifts to individuals. And the purpose of them is very clear and obvious. It's very clear and obvious. Why could Moses turn his staff into a serpent? He could give himself leprosy and heal it, and he could turn water into blood. Why? Moses says to God, well, what if the people say, the Lord didn't appear to you. God says, here's what you show them. You can do these miracles. And they worked every time. Moses never threw that staff down, and it just stayed a staff. And Moses didn't never had to say, well, you know, it just wasn't the Lord's will this time. But it's worked before. When God gave those miracle-working abilities to people, to people, they always worked. That's why 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 gives very clear instructions on not sh showboating your miraculous gifts, because people were doing that with the gift of languages. That's why he says, at the most, or two, at the most three, with an interpreter. Now, I remember going to a Pentecostal church in uh, Williamsburg, Ohio, and the lady stood up and said a bunch of gibberish, and then interpreted it herself. And nobody did anything. No one, no one tried to stop her. No one, no one said, hey, you're not supposed to do that. Someone else is supposed to interpret. 
I just, it was like, wow. It's just, it was just pandemonium. Pandemonium. Okay, so Calvin says the gift of tongues has ceased, but the spirit of understanding, the anointing that we have, 1 John 2.20, that helps us understand, and regeneration are a force and always shall be a force. And Isaiah 30, verse 1, in his commentary on that, John Calvin said this, quote, Let it be observed that two things are here connected, the Word and the Spirit of God, in opposition to the fanatics who aim at oracles and hidden revelations. That means private, private revelations without the Word, referring to the written Word. Okay, so that's what Calvin was dealing with in his own time, the enthusiasts, or the Schwermerai, or the Zwickau prophets, they were called. Okay, they had to deal with the very same things we deal with today. People claiming prophetic words from God and everything else, divorced from Scripture. Now, I want to tell you, a lot of people think that prophecy, meaning the ability to give a direct word from God outside of Scripture, that's the baby in the charismatic bathwater that we've got to preserve, okay, is prophecy. Someone can, like, speak directly from God. Here's the thing. If someone has a prophecy supposedly from God and it agrees with Scripture, it's superfluous. We don't need it. We already have what Scripture says. If it contradicts Scripture, it's wrong. I don't need to know what prophet so-and-so thinks God told him today because I already have everything I need in Scripture. I don't need anything else. I need no more revelation from God in my life. I have everything I need in the written word of the living God in Scripture. Okay, what Calvin is saying there when he, he says that they divorce the word, the, the spirit from the word, God has joined together the spirit and the word. The fanatics, referring to the Anabaptists and another group called the Libertines, they separate the word from the spirit, and in fact, they elevate the spirit above the word. I want to tell you, I knew a lot of charismatic folks when I was in college, and slowly but surely over time, their respect for, their reverence for, and their devotion to studying the word of God ceases to exist i saw this happen where people it's like the pastor gets up in the pulpit okay everybody turn to matthew chapter whatever and everyone's like whatever but if he got in the pulpit and said on my way to church this morning the spirit of god spoke to me all of a sudden everybody's listening it ultimately overthrows confidence in the sufficiency of scripture and that is profoundly dangerous Sola Scriptura is not just a slogan against Roman tradition. It's also against the fanatics and these Anabaptist groups. It's also against the Montanists and the Enthusiasts and the Zwickau Prophets and the Charismatics and the Third Wave and the Vineyard and the Toronto Blessing and all the rest of the stuff where people claim to have direct revelations from God. Sola Scriptura. You cannot be reformed and be a Charismatic. You can't. Because if you believe God is still talking today, that he's actually speaking, we're not, not that he's guiding and convicting and leading us along the way, and he, he puts burdens on our heart. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone says, the Lord has given me a prophetic revelation, and they start saying something, and it's not scripture. You can't do that and be reformed. You can't be a reformed charismatic. Those things don't go together. They really don't. And that's why the whole idea of the, the new Calvinism, I, I really looked at that. Once I understood that there are individuals that were part of that that were charismatic, or they were you know, what's called open but cautious about that, I thought, that's doomed. That's doomed. Because eventually, what that does is that makes room for all the wacko stuff. 
And the thing is, even the, the so-called thoughtful Reformed Charismatics like Sam Storms and Wayne Grudem and John Piper, etc. I mean, they, they don't criticize anybody, not even Todd Bentley, uh, until after the wheels come off and there's a huge scandal or something like that. And that's the thing, we don't need to be... We don't need to be agnostic about something like that. The, from the first time I ever saw a video of Todd Bentley, I knew that guy was evil. I knew immediately. I mean, he's talking about kicking old women in the face with his boots and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, this guy is nuts. Now, Todd Bentley, I mean, come on. How can you watch anything that guy does and think that any of that has anything to do with God or with the Holy Spirit or with Scripture or anything like that? In the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1, Chapter 9, and again, I, I can't recommend the Institutes of the Christian Religion more highly. That, that is a masterpiece of Christian theology. And he deal, I mean, they dealt with the same stuff that we deal with today. In Chapter 9, Book 1, Section 1, it's titled, The Fanatics Wrongly Appeal to the Holy Spirit. And Calvin calls them <laughs> spiritual lightweights, those who have forsaken Scripture. And the reason they forsake scripture is because all they want is for God to tell me what I need to know. They don't want to study. They don't want to have to dig it out. They don't want to have to exposit the word of God and put their mind to it. They don't want to have to do the hard spade work of biblical exegesis and learning and study and, and digging into the word of God and searching commentary. They don't want to have to do any of that work. It's, it's a lazy way of doing theology. They don't want to put their mind to work. They, they don't want to be diligent to present themselves to God as workmen who don't need to be ashamed. They're not willing to put in the heavy lifting. They simply want God to just zap them and give them what needs to be said. <clears throat> and uh, people get so upset, you know, when we criticize uh, the charismatic movement and char criticize all that stuff because they'll say, well, it's divisive and, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't criticize stuff. And John Calvin says, quote, even a dog barks if he sees someone assault his master. Charismatic stuff and this claim to prophecy and claiming that these gifts that ceased in the apostolic age, that individuals do not have miracle working powers or the ability to speak miraculously in languages they've never known or studied, those gifts don't exist in the church today. And when people claim that they do, it's, it's a fraud. It's a fraud and it's a distraction. <clears throat> And eventually, that takes center stage away from Scripture. That's the danger of it. That's why we have to criticize it. <coughs> Excuse me. Calvin says, It is the highest value to ask nothing beyond the Word of God. God begets and multiplies His church only by means of His written Word. So you want to see revival. You want to see change. You want to see people saved? Brothers, fellow ministers, elders, Christians you got to get people into the text of the Bible. You've got to get people into Scripture. you got to walk through the passages and exposit what they mean, which means you got to do a lot of work. you got to do a lot of reading. You know, I've been working on my sermon for Sunday. It's about biblical womanhood, and I've been going over these passages, looking at the Greek, looking at the text as it was originally written, looking at commentaries, making sure I'm handling it accurately. That takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of work. Wouldn't it be, I mean, easier for me to just go, oh, the, the Lord gave me a prophetic revelation about womanhood, and here's here are my thoughts on the subject. But you know what? My thoughts, divorced from Scripture, are meaningless. Martin Luther said, man's thoughts about pretty much everything in the whole world 
apart from God's word, are nothing but error and poison. The thing is, if you don't have the written word of God behind the things you say in the name of God, you are playing with fire. Listen to Calvin. Listen to Calvin's confidence in scripture. Let this animate you. As you think about the new Calvinism and its sympathy to the charismatic stuff, which is, which is to say it's not Calvinistic at all. It's not reformed either. Calvin said this, quote, Let the pastors boldly dare all things by the written word of God by which they are constituted administrators. Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and to obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it, from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep. Let them kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose. Let them thunder. Let them lightning. But let them do all things in accordance with the word of God. End quote. Isn't that awesome? He's right. I don't need to know what Prophet Fred as some local church somewhere said. And the thing is, Prophet Fred, if he's a true believer, he doesn't need to think that his intuitions are God talking to him, because they're not. God speaks to his church in one place only, the written word. Does he guide us? Of course. Does he put burdens on our hearts? Oh, yes. Does he bring things to mind? Oh, yes, he brings his word to mind. He brings scripture to our minds. But does God give prophetic utterances to us? No, not today, because there's no need. There is no need. And all the times that people make those claims, how do you test those claims? How do you test them? And if we don't obey what, a, what an alleged prophet tells us outside of Scripture that we can neither confirm nor deny with the written word of God, how could we possibly ever know if it's really from God or if that guy just made it up? You can't. But that's what sola scriptura is all about. Scripture is the only rule to direct us. So prophetic revelations do not direct me how to glorify or or enjoy God. And the thing is, if you're reformed and you subscribe to one of the reformed confessions, you can't be a charismatic. Okay? You can't be a charismatic um, and you can't be sympathetic to all this other stuff too, really. You've got to understand what, what the Reformed, historic Reformed confessions mean about covenant theology, too. And about biblical worship, too. About the regulative principle. Our confession, the Westminster Confession, requires us to say no to all of the innovative stuff in worship that people want us to do today. If we're going to see Reformation, if we're going to see true revival... And if we are to see the, the resurgence of reformed truth that's, that's begun in these last few decades, if you want to see that continue to press on in the world, we have to be committed to the written word of God as the sole source of God speaking. And we have got to be excited that I can read the Bible and I don't have to wonder, did God really say this? Or is this just something this guy made up? When I say I'm a cessationist, do I mean do I mean by that God never does miracles? No. What I mean is what I mean by that is God does not give miraculous gifts to individuals to authenticate new revelation because there is no new revelation. We have it all now. 
So that's what old Calvinism is all about. The recovering the old Calvinism and being reformed. If you're really reformed, you're not going to be restless. If, you're, if you believe that there's prophetic words of divine revelation being given through living prophets today outside of Scripture that can be neither confirmed nor denied by Scripture, I can understand why you'd be really restless. Because being in situations where things like that went on, and people made those kinds of claims to prophetic revelation that you couldn't confirm or deny, you didn't know for sure, yeah, that, that's a recipe for being restless. To me... I was restless before I became reformed. When I became reformed, that restlessness went away. Because I learned how to be secure in my salvation, trusting in the finished, unchanging work of Jesus Christ in my place. And I learned about that solely, completely, and only in the written word of God. My Christian faith was never anything but damaged by so-called prophecies from people who claim to have words from God. Damaged by it. Never helped. Because you always wondered, did God really say that? Did God really say that? No, that's a question that Satan asked. God really say that? You know, it's not God's will for his children to constantly be asking that question. Did he really say that? Did he really say that? You see, I can read my Bible, and I don't need to wonder at all, did God really say that? And that's why I'm not restless. That's why I get it. I understand how to be saved, and how to have assurance, and how to rest in the finished work of Christ. Okay, let me see what y'all are saying over here. Wow. Okay, there's Susan. Hey, Susan. And uh, there's Rebecca. Hey there. Cafe Queen. Hello. I became reformed during the, the young Russell Center. I know some people that, that became reformed that way too. And I, I've always hoped that they will get into the reformed confessions because that's, that's what really reformed is all about. Plus, it's, it really gets you into scripture um, and gives you the full orb to Christian faith. Not just, you know, soteriology, not just salvation, but the whole reformed understanding of covenant theology, of redemptive history, and sacraments, ecclesia, the church, eschatology, all that stuff. It's all really important stuff. There's Lee Hood, there's Ryan, my dear brother. Um, yeah, Francis Chan, really from day one, I I felt like there was something off with, with that guy. But I've learned to trust my instincts because they're usually, they've turned out at times, actually not at times, usually to be right. <laughs> if someone seems weird, it's usually because they are weird. Okay, uh, most of them are defunct in at least one of the major reformed categories, whether that is covenant theology, ecclesiology, that's right. That's right. And that's what others, you know, Reformed theologians have pointed out. This new Calvinism stuff, it's not it's not Calvinism, and it's not Reformed either. Young Russellson Reformed is not Reformed. It's not Reformed. Okay. Um, 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 um. Or in the back of the Reformation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, the Reformation Study Bible is great. It's got the Reformed Confessions in the back. That's why that, that um, Study Bible is so big. Uh, oh, goodness. Wayne Grudem and Sam Storms, that's right, they're considered scholars. And it's to me, it's sad, because their, present, their unwillingness to condemn this stuff and to be what the historic Christian church, and I think what Scripture clearly teaches, to be cessationists about the miraculous sign and wonder gifts that authenticated divine revelation, their unwillingness to condemn it gives credibility 
to a movement that should not be given credibility. And that has done unspeakable damage to people. Yeah, reason to hope. I, I never got the restless thing either. As, as soon as I heard that expression, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm young and reformed. Never been restless. I was restless before I was reformed. But when I, when I became reformed, uh, my restlessness uh, was erased because I was anchored to the word of God and to the true gospel. Okay. I was charismatic back then. Yeah, yeah. Those, I know people that went to Toronto, went to Brownsville. I know people that went to, um, what's the latest one? Where, where was it? In Asbury. Asbury College or whatever. <sighs> yeah, it had an elderly charismatic word of faith neighbor. Talking to them about anything biblical or historical is almost impossible. It's all magic. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I've had the same kinds of difficulties, so... Okie dokie. Um, so, whoever John Dalton is, good gracious, he's, all his stuff was deleted. Hmm, must not be a nice person. Okay. Um, 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 um. Okay, well, that's about it for today. I'm going to get back to trying to polish off my sermon, but hopefully this has been helpful to you. Um, old Calvinism is the best kind of Calvinism there is, what Calvin you know, actually said. And uh, he didn't, he had no use for the fanatics, as he called them. Uh, the charismatics of his own day, and he excoriated them. And he, he didn't like those that didn't understand covenant theology and baptism either. And so it's a strange thing, uh, the use of the label. Um, but being reformed means you're not restless. You're resting on the finished work of Christ. So young and reformed, hopefully, but not restless. Okay, the fact that they were restless is because they weren't really reformed. They weren't really biblical. And that's why Chan is often wackoness now and who knows what mark driscoll's doing these days but that stuff was doomed from the beginning because it really wasn't biblical to begin with it just had a little veneer of being biblical but it really wasn't so let's get back to our bibles study the reformed confessions you know don't believe don't take their word for it go to the text look at the scriptures that's the key that's what we all need to be doing but thank you all for watching or for listening